Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining us today is our regular guest, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, everybody. We have a special guest, one of our in-charge paramedics here at MCHD, Jesus Contreras. Good morning, guys. And we're going to talk today about one of our continuing education emphasis points, May of 2023. So this may be a, a few months in the editing process. So we'll be a, a few months later. So a good time for us to review what we just talked about in continuing education. And what we focused on was like so many of the problems that we address from an educational standpoint here at MCHD, driven by our own data, our own chart review, our own sense of, hey, can we do better for some of these patients? And then we saw some external literature, which supported the fact that, hey, other people are looking at this, talked with some of our regional partners who were also dealing with this group of patients, and we decided, hey, we needed to do a better job. We need to bundle our care in this situation, and hopefully this will help minimize our problems. And what group of patients are we talking about? We're talking about the patients that we arrive on scene, walk into a house, walk into the apartment, walk into the garage, and we see a peri-arrest patient. We see a patient who oh man, they're real sick. And how have we identified those patients for most of our careers, both in the emergency room and in the EMS setting? How would you, how would you talk about your, did you use an analytical tool here or how, how did you recognize Not them? a bit. This is 100% medic provider gestalt. And these would all read the same, whether it's Casey and I looking at CQI, looking at charts. Uh, we get emailed on all these cases when they have a death in our care. And actually just reviewed, we just reviewed the, the Texas CARES data this morning. And in, at least in Texas, 12% of patients will arrest in front of the first responders. So in front of EMS, in front of fire. So this is not an unusual, this is, you know, one in 10 patients that are out there suffering cardiac arrest will arrest in our care. So this is a real big problem. And they all, all those charts read the same. Arrived on scene, patient agonal, gasping, placed on oxygen, we move them out to the truck to our safe place. When we put them on the monitor, we recognize they're in cardiac arrest. So very, very slim, they all have a similar theme and the similar theme is we're moving a very, very, very sick patient without much intervention. And just to backtrack a bit for the listeners, Texas CARES data looks at all EMS cardiac arrests in the state of Texas that report to uh, the CARES consortium. And just to reiterate that point, in that entire group of cardiac arrest data that was reported to the CARES registry, 12% of those patients arrested in the presence of EMS. So we think about this oftentimes like, well, they're already in arrest when we get there. What can we do? Well, this data is telling us and our chart review is telling us and some of the movement regionally and nationally is telling us there is a subset who arrest in our care, and how can we better have a safety net in place to at least catch these folks when they fall a little bit better than what we're doing now? And what we're doing now, I don't feel like, and I say now prior to CE, is not necessarily negligent. This is really a a rock and a hard place situation because we're wedged between the toilet and the bathtub a lot of times. That's where people tend to cardiac arrest, seems like, from my chart review experience. And where do we want to get to? We want to get to the truck, to our office, 
so that we have all of our supplies, we have our space, we have our lights, and we can adequately resuscitate these patients. But I'm going to lead to Jesus now and let him tell us about his recent case, and then we'll come back into the Moose mnemonic and what it is and why and what some of the folks have found nationally and regionally with these patients. So tell us about your case, Jesus, because it really illustrates how this can be beneficial. Yes, sir. So absolutely, we've all been in those cases where we where we want to get to the office. I think that's been installed in us since we were uh, in school to to move to our safe space in the office where we can do work. And um, in the past, we you know we've we've all seen those patients that end up arresting on us in the truck. But this case in particular was shortly after uh, RC, actually a week after CE, where we learned moves a mnemonic uh, brought to us by Dr. Dixon here. And um, and so going into this call, the call note said that the patient had an acute change in mental status, was unresponsive. And upon our arrival to the facility, um, this uh, 60-year-old female uh, patient that we walked upon um, was surrounded by some medical staff there, was uh, unresponsive like they reported, um, had an O2 sat in the 80s. Uh, but was now being oxygenated with a non-rebreather. And our first blood pressure that we read was 69 systolic. Um, so we immediately knew and talked about and went back on last week's CE, which was moves. And, and understanding that this patient is more than likely going to arrest on us unless we start early interventions on that patient where they are. Now, that's with the exception of scene safety issues, uh, access issues. This is a patient that was already on a hospital bed and was already in a place where there was plenty of light, plenty of room to work with. We had plenty of paramedic firefighters on scene with us. And so I started delegating at that moment for some of those firefighters to get me an IV established. And if they couldn't get that IV, to get me an IO. We already had oxygenation in place, and that patient was starting to perk back up on her on on her O2 sets. So, um, so I knew that I needed to get out my bag, some push dose pressers, and uh, we've thankfully um, streamlined that process to where we can mix that drug and get it ready to push within a minute or two. And that's exactly what we did. We um, we got that IV established. We started pushing those push dose pressures while the facility was getting us a packet, uh, you know, a hundred page packet of their medical history. And uh, from there on, I started uh, finding out a little bit more about the patient. This patient did have an acute change in, in, in state, um, did have a nitro patch on, which was taken off at that moment, and um, and also had a, a fresh uh, craniotomy scar right over the, the top of her head. So we knew there were some neurological issues that have been, you know, going on in the past. And so, you know, from there on, I, I hear Dr. Dixon's voice in my head. What are the five killer issues? What are the things that could be going on with this patient? What are some differentials? And and I started trying to formulate those differentials early on. And, and obviously, uh, a CVA, a bleed were at the top of my list, as well as complications with those antihypertensives that patient was on and that nitro patch that the patient was on. And uh, from there, once we got that first dose of that push dose and stabilized the patient uh, as far as uh, hemodynamically and, and got her blood pressure up, we planned a, a safe movement of that patient to the truck. Um, and on the way, we proceeded to give 
uh, about three or four more doses of that push dose before we started an actual epidrip for the patient. So let's let's go into moves and let's take moves through each piece of Jesus's sure. case here because really illustrates well what we're trying to do. And it's not stay on scene and turn into intensivists. It's about putting a very basic level of resuscitation bundle, resuscitation safety net into place before we move the patient from the scene to the truck. So take take through the mnemonic. Yeah, and spoiler alert, Dr. Patrick and I are not big mnemonic people. And we, we talked about in CE, we, we had a, a residency faculty that was a big mnemonic person, but, you know, no one really remembers what AEIOU tips. I mean, that that's the mnemonic for altered mental status. I can't remember what that all is. And we, we came up with moves because we believe here that checklists work, that they're a foundational reminder. They kind of provide a framework to, to help you remember some of the important steps in sedation, in DSI, in taking a high-risk refusal, in a peri-arrest patient. And when we formulated this, this Moose algorithm and identified this problem, it was kind of an aha moment for me because, I mean, it, it should make sense. We've talked for many years, like when we get Ross back in a patient that's been in arrest, what's the most vulnerable time for that patient to rearrest? It's within the first couple of minutes. So we take time, we do some housekeeping things. In that vulnerable period, we don't try to jump up and evacuate them from the scene immediately and leave all of our help. And, you know, we take time, we start our vasopressor drips, uh, we, you know, put them on the ventilator, we formalize all of our procedures and make sure the patient's stable for, for transfer. So the MOVES algorithm is just the, the fundamental safety net bundle. It's almost like the snores. So it's MOVES, is full monitoring, plus pads, plus defib pads, pacing pads, always oxygen adjuncts, so OPMP airways, whether it's uh, just non-rebreather as Jesus used in his case, or if they're not ventilating adequately, BVM with OPMP airway. V is vascular access, so IV or IO. As Jesus said, we don't look around for a long time in a critically ill patient. I would say that I, I would, if I had a big vein that was available, I would, I think that's reasonable to give that a try. If I didn't see anything available, I would get that IO gun out and start an IO. V, or I'm sorry, E is for epinephrine, so vasopressors, fluids, and, and vascular support. And S is kind of the, the catch-all. Remember, always check a sugar on these patients and think about a sedation plan. Are you going to need sedation moves? So full monitoring plus pads, oxygen and adjuncts, vascular access, epinephrine, vasopressors, and fluids, and S is for sugar, check of sugar, and what's your sedation plan? Are we going to need some sedation? have to give credit and a shout out to some of our regional and national partners who have also worked on this similar group of patients. I've uh, sat through several lectures over the past year or two with the folks from MedStar, um, Dr. Vithlani, who was there, Brian Miller, who's one of the assistant medical directors there now, have talked a lot about what they've coined in their system, sudden ambulance death syndrome, or SAD. Um, this is really a similar patient group. It's patients that arrest in front of EMS care, and they've realized that's an issue there, and they've tried to educate on this as well. So kudos to them. We took also some, some knowledge and uh, some education from 
uh, Dr. Brian Clemency's recent paper that we'll put in the show notes that was in pre-hospital emergency care, looking at really trying to better codify and, and recognize these patients uh, through retrospectively looking at vital signs and mental status in patients who arrest in EMS care and modifying the, one of the early warning uh, triage scales which sometimes we, I think we look at these papers and maybe say, oh, that, that's obvious. But yeah, it's obvious until someone actually takes data from thousands of patients and analyzes it and says, yeah, if the patient is altered and they have an abnormal vital sign, they've got a 75% plus chance of arresting an EMS care. Jesus's patient was altered with significant hypotension and hypoxia. That's an arrest in EMS care pending until proven otherwise. So really this is not our initiative and our initiative only this is something that i think everyone in ems has seen as a potential problem and a potential focus that we can improve and so hopefully contributing moves to this initiative to this group of patients will be helpful for our listeners out there the the really excellent part about moves to me is that number one it's not expensive we don't have to go buy a new device we don't have to buy a new monitor there's no expensive medicines here these are all things that we do all day every day this is a a set of defibrillator pads mp airways a bvm lots of oxygen an io plus or minus which i would argue in this patient is absolutely valid and reasonable a 100 cc bag of saline and a milligram of epinephrine check not going to break the bank anywhere and then a blood sugar that you should be getting anyways and consideration of a sedation plan these are all relatively inexpensive and easy to implement things that we all should be doing and aren't going to break the bank anywhere hopefully this is something that you see as useful and can bundle care for these patients and if we look at what works dsis are evergreen example here the pieces that dr jarvis put together in his delayed sequence bundle were not things that we weren't already doing or didn't already know about he just said hey we need to put these together in a bundle and do them in an organized fashion every single time and guess what we'll prevent peri-intubation episodes of hypoxia and peri-intubation arrest now will moves do the same we don't know that yet that will be a very difficult study to implement. Hopefully somebody out there is interested in that and can take the reins and move ahead. We feel like that from a cost standpoint, from a risk standpoint, we're comfortable moving ahead with moves, not uh, pun not intended there, without a randomized double blind study here because these are the sickest of sick patients, correct? Absolutely, Casey. And I think that one of the things that we're building into moves is pause and perform. Right, it, just like with DSI, there's a delay built into the into the system. There's hard stops. There's that hypoxemia. Right, we're we're not going to paralyze people with a sat less than 94. We're going to optimize that to greater than 94. We're going to get their blood pressure greater than 90 before we give a paralytic. And it's kind of the same thought with moves. Right, we we're starting to intervene on those risky physiologic parameters of the patient. Their oxygenation. Their their hypotension, we're addressing those early on in hopes that they're not going to cardiac arrest. And it puts a pause in there that allows us, I think, uh, we had stay in play, uh, work on seeing kind of stay in play has been the mantra. And Dr. Patrick hated that. And he's like, no, pause and perform, which I think is actually way more accurate. Well, here's, here's the other catch, Jesus, and these are two things I want to really make clear to the listeners. When you put the moves pieces in place in your patient, how long did that take? 
it took no longer than about three minutes. And I would say, depending on, you were in a in an extended care facility setting, probably easier to do it quickly there. Let's put yourself in a third floor apartment complex between the tub and the toilet. How long would that take? Different story, yeah, 10 minutes. So I feel like 10 minutes plus or minus is reasonable. If you get a really nicely set up situation, maybe you can get it in three to five. There are no hard stops here to move the patient out of the environment. There are just the stops to get the resuscitation bundle pieces in place. So we're not talking about resuscitating these patients where we find them. We're just talking about trying to put the safety net in place because some of these patients, no matter what we do with monitoring oxygen, vascular access, epinephrine, sedation, and sugar, they're, they're still going to arrest in our care. We're not going to make this number zero. When we know that 12% of patients out there in the CARES registry arrested in front of us, what we want to do is take that number down, decrease it, and then more importantly, be ready when they do. Because if we just put them in the stair chair, we put them in the mega mover, and we go from third floor to truck, that's going to be 120, 180, 240 seconds. And if we get to the truck and now we find them in arrest and we have no pads on, you know, no oxygen or two liters nasal cannula, we have no vascular access, we have no epinephrine ready, then we're going to be stuck not only behind the eight ball from the standpoint of all that time and transferring them, but we've got to do all the safety net implementation pieces before we can even get started with resuscitation. So it's about just being proactive as opposed to being reactive. And we're not advising, we're not teaching our medics to stay on scene and try to resuscitate over some blood pressure or some oxygenation level. It's just about having the safety net in place. Is that clear enough? No, crystal clear. Oh, I loved it. I, I think it was a good mnemonic, Doc. Uh, it makes sense, moves before moving people, right? And uh, obviously I'm biased. I think it, it works because it worked last night with that patient. I don't know that it's about working or not working. It's just about an overall approach in EMS, in emergency care, to be ready when patients decompensate in front of us. And we know that our job is to show up on scene with incomplete information, with an incomplete story, with patients who very well may have just inched their way up to that cliff edge. That's the way I always think about it is we have varying levels of how close the patient is to the cliff in emergency care and sometimes they're hugging the edge with their toes and we get to show up and try to mitigate that and that's a really difficult thing to do but it's I would argue impossible to do if we're reactive so this is just about saying hey the evidence tells us that three out of four of these folks arrest if they've got altered mental status and an abnormal vital sign that's not rocket science that's something that we can recognize and see so what can we put into place from a normal day-to-day care standpoint that we're using every day. We're using early IOs here at MCHD every day. We believe in push-dose pressors and aggressive fluid resuscitation, norepinephrine drips if a patient is hypotensive. So those are things we're already doing. Adjunct airway management, aggressive BVM, and or even an eye gel. These are all part of our day-to-day practice. Being prepared with early monitoring and nasal cannula entitle and a good blood sugar, that's all part of what we do. It's probably worth, before we wrap up, mentioning the sedation piece, and then we'll, we'll close it out. And that's just to remind everyone that whether it's medical delirium, traumatic delirium, uh, sometimes folks are thrashing and not cooperating to the point to where monitoring and IV IO access becomes impossible. And we plug in 
hey, they're really hypoxic, they're really hypotensive, they're really altered. So now you've got a thrashing patient who's peri-arrest, who has that very high risk of arrest in our care, in our presence. So sometimes we're really stuck between a rock and a super hard place, and we have to, to decide to sedate that patient. What we can't do is watch that patient thrash in the floor of their home because that's just the clock ticking towards arrest. Agree? Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is, this is a hard place to get for all clinicians, but at the end of the day, if we can't do those foundational care pieces, we, we can't keep them on monitoring, we can't put them on oxygen, we can't place an IO, we have to start somewhere. And even though I would like to minimize sedation in all at-risk patients because it's all hemodynamically compromising at some point, I think you have to you have to look at the patient and weigh the risk versus the benefit for that particular patient. And in the patient Dr. Patrick just described, I would 100% use sedation to get control so I could place monitoring and oxygen and get vascular access, start some push those pressors and, and fluids and then obtain a blood sugar and uh, just absolutely sometimes you may have to start with the S. And if you can't monitor someone, you don't have access to treat them, I would argue that it's fairly impossible to do a good job by that patient. So it's always a difficult decision, like you said, sedating an unstable patient. But if that patient can't be monitored, they can't get vascular access, you can't apply oxygen then I know what doing nothing is going to cause. Exactly. And that's going to cause an arrest impending pretty much every time. So thanks, Jesus, for joining us. Thank you, Doc. We'll review moves one more time before we wrap up. Moves for peri-arrest, critically ill patients, when we find them in their couch, in their bathroom floor, in their nursing home bed, we're going to apply full monitoring with defibrillator pads, oxygen, lots of it, with the best available route you see, and that's going to include adjuncts, OPMP airway, non-rebreather, BVM, and or an eye gel, depending on the patient's ventilatory status. V, vascular access quickly. IV, attempt one, maybe two, but no more than that, move to an IO. E, epinephrine, one gram, or one milligram, excuse me. Yeah, one milligram in 100 cc's gives you a 10 mic per mil concentration. Uh, two mils gives you a 20 microgram push dose. That's the bridge to the truck and we set up norepinephrine for all of our hypotensive patients unless they're bradycardic or in anaphylaxis. We'll continue epi drip in those situations. Everyone else gets norepinephrine drips and then make sure we're getting the sugar and we at least think through a sedation plan if we need it. So there's moves. We'll note moves in the show notes. We'll link Dr. Clemency's paper in the show notes. Excellent stuff for trying to better visualize and better anticipate when these patients are going to potentially arrest in our care and how we can be, again, proactive as opposed to reactive. Thank you, everyone out there for listening. We appreciate your feedback podcast at mchd-tx.org. If you have questions, concerns, or ideas, leave us a like wherever you listen to podcasts out there. Uh, we appreciate five stars. It makes us feel good about ourselves. As always. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back with another episode again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.